When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to TLS Voices, an occasional series of readings brought to you by The Times Literary Supplement. I'm Michael Keynes. Every summer, around the end of June, a friend of mine does a sane and sensible thing. She unplugs the phone and turns on the television. It is time to watch the championships at the All England Club in Wimbledon, and absolutely nothing, not a friend, not a dentist's appointment, not the delivery of a cheque for a £1,000, must come between her and the pleasures of watching tennis. I know how she feels. There are others whose love of the game runs to more unorthodox extremes, however, as I've learned from reading William Skidelsky's Federer and Me, a fan's memoir, or, as the subtitle has it, a story of obsession. Tennis, like many other sports, can inspire that kind of extreme commitment. It has also inspired the odd poem, or page in a novel, and sometimes something more. The game of tennis is centuries old, or at least the game that was gradually standardised and modernised over the course of the 19th century is centuries old. Medieval in origin, the game now known as real tennis found its way swiftly from France to England, and it can be traced through the works of various writers for whom it meant many different things. The poet John Gower put a moralising spin on it in the 14th century, as did the 17th century dramatist John Webster. We are merely the star's tennis balls, Webster has a character say in his tragedy The Duchess of Melfi. Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, related the game to love and sex. Love compared to a tennis play. Where is the heart at tennis plays and men to gaming fool? Love is the court, hope is the house, and favour serves the ball. The ball itself is true desert. The line which measure shows is reason where on judgment looks how players win or lose. The jetty is deceitful guile, the stopper, jealousy, which hath Sir Argos's hundred eyes wherewith to watch and pry. The fault wherewith fifteen is lost is want of wit and sense, and he that brings the racket in is double diligence. And lo, the racket is free will, which makes the ball rebound, 
and noble beauty is the chase of every game the ground. But rashness strikes the ball awry, and where is oversight? A bandy-ho, the people cry, and so the ball takes flight. Now in the end, good liking proves content the game and gain. Thus, in a tennis knit, I love a pleasure mixed with pain. There are stories about Henry VIII enjoying tennis, the absurd Earl of Oxford interrupting a match to abuse Sir Philip Sidney, and according to Ben Johnson, an English lord struck his tennis balls at the spectators' gallery if he saw a face he didn't like. For the satirical Scarron, writing in the 1650s, tennis courts were generally insalubrious venues for less than sporting behaviour. In all the inferior towns of the kingdom, there's generally a tennis court, whither all the idle people are used to resort, some to play, others only to look on. Tis in those places where cursing and swearing passes for a rhetorical flourish, and the absent are murdered with the tongues of backbiters and bullies. No man scapes scot-free. There all live in open defiance, and everybody is admitted to rail according to his talent. By contrast, writing a century later, an expert on card games called Edmund Hoyle only had eyes for the game itself, that is, for the sake of making a wager on it. Imaginative writing about tennis has flourished during the era of the modern game. The era of Wimbledon and the increasingly professionalised sport is also the era of E.M. Forster's amateur players in Room with a View, against the background of the South Downs of Giorgio Bassani's Jewish enthusiasts in the garden of the Finzi Contini's, who are barred from playing at the local club because of fascist racial laws, of J.P. Donlevy's farcical De Alphonse tennis, of Martin Amos's novelist rivals in the information, of the Tennis Academy and the ace Hal Incandenza in David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Professional aspirations lead to a dubious Monte Carlo adventure in Somerset Maugham's story The Facts of Life, while Ring Lardner, in Tennis by Cable, invents the long-distance game, in which cost-effective telegraphy replaces expensive air travel. Why should tennis players put themselves to such expense, Lardner wonders? Tennis by Cable works like this. Here is an idea that was suggested by my second son, Jimmy, as we were sitting at some meal the day after the tennis boys played for the East and West Championship. I made the remark that Vincent Richards had beat Bill Johnson in straight sets, and he says, where was the matches played? And I says, right here on Long Island. And he says, well, was he here on Long Island yesterday? So I gave him a sarcastic answer, namely, oh no, he was out in San Francisco and they played by telegraph, like they play the international chess matches sometimes. So then I had to explain to him about the international chess matches that is sometimes played by cable. And he says, why don't they play the international golf matches and tennis matches and etc. by cable, instead of them taking all the trouble to make the trips back and forth? So I thought it over a long while and come to the conclusion that maybe after all he was right. And why should people cross the ocean just for a friendly game that they don't get no money out of? And we will take, for instance, the Australian tennis team, who I have nicknamed the Anzacs, and it must cost them a mint of money to come here from clear over there, and what does it get them outside of the exercise, which they could just as well have had over there, and not take no chances of being seasick? And I don't know how much it costs to get here from Australia, but it certainly would not cost nowhere near as much if they played tennis by cable.
For example, suppose Tilden was playing Gerald Patterson and it happened to be Tilden's first serve. Why, he would cable to Patterson that he had got his first serve over and it was a terrific hard-hit ball. And what are you going to do about it? Why, Patterson would cable back, it did not look so hard-hit to me. I returned it way into the upper corner of the court on your back hand where it was pretty near impossible for you to get it. Then Tilden would reply... Well, I did get it on my backhand, and as you was close up to the net, I made a passing shot, which you couldn't possibly get. Then Patterson would reply, It may have seemed to you like I couldn't possibly get it, but as a matter of fact, I did get it by a phenomenal stab, and I returned it where you couldn't get it in a week. Then Tilden would wait a while and send back the following answer. It ain't only five days since your last shot came back, and I managed to get a hold of it and lob it over your head to pretty close to the baseline, where I doubt if you could get a racket on it unless you used an airship. Patterson's reply would be, I bought an airship as soon as I received your cable and managed to get back and hit that ball, and I hit it with such force that even if you do get your racket on it, it will probably break your racket. Tilden would answer, Well, I seen that ball was going to break my racket as the last named is an old racket that has stood lots of wear and tear. So I bought myself a new racket and returned your shot to one inch from the baseline where no living being could get their racket on it. In this way, the game could be carried on indefinitely and would probably be the closest tennis game ever played and still not cost near as much as if Mr Patterson had come over here to play it And further and more, we would not have to set out in the boiling sun on hot seats to watch it, to say nothing about how much more chance Patterson would have to win. Anybody keen to read more about tennis and the meaning of life is directed to an anthology of that name, edited by Jay Jennings, which includes such delights as Clobber the Lobber, a poem by Felicia Lamport, and a dialogue concerning the question whether a tennis ball may be said to hanker for the other side of the net, by Comrade Hilbury. There is also an entire collection of poems devoted to lawn tennis by Peter Scuppam, called The Game. And for aficionados of the essay, David Foster Wallace's Federer as a Religious Experience and How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart. The list could go on, but let's end it with P.G. Woodhouse's Love Among the Chickens, and a chapter in which the usual hapless chap tries to impress a young lady called Phyllis with his sporting prowess. We proceeded to the tennis court. I played with the sun in my eyes. I might, if I chose, emphasise that fact and attribute my subsequent route to it, adding, by way of solidifying the excuse, that I was playing in a strange court with a borrowed racket and that my mind was preoccupied, firstly with Le Fair Hawk, secondly and chiefly, with the gloomy thought that Phyllis and my opponent seemed to be on friendly terms with each other. Their manner at tea had been almost that of an engaged couple. There was a thorough understanding between them. I will not, however, take refuge behind excuses. I admit, without qualifying the statement, that Mr Chase was too good for me. I had always been under the impression that lieutenants in the Royal Navy were not brilliant at tennis. I had met them at various houses, but they had never shone conspicuously. They had played an earnest, unobtrusive game and generally seemed glad when it was over. Mr Chase was not of this sort. His service was bottled lightning. His returns behaved like jumping crackers. 
he won the first game in precisely six strokes. He served. Only once did I take the service with the full face of the racket, and then I seemed to be stopping a bullet. I returned it into the net. The last of the series struck the wooden edge of my racket and soared over the back net into the shrubbery after the manner of a snick to long slip off a fast bowler. Game, said Mr Chase. We'll look for that afterwards. I felt a worm and no man. Phyllis, I thought, would probably judge my entire character from this exhibition. A man, she would reflect, who could be so feeble and miserable a failure at tennis could not be good for much in any department of life. She would compare me instinctively with my opponent and contrast his dash and brilliance with my own inefficiency. Somehow the massacre was beginning to have a bad effect on my character. All my self-respect was ebbing. A little more of this and I should become crushed, a mere human jelly. It was my turn to serve. Service is my strong point at tennis. I am inaccurate but vigorous and occasionally send in a quite unplayed shot. One or two of these even at the expense of a fault or so, and I might be permitted to retain at least a portion of my self-respect. I opened with a couple of faults. The sight of Phyllis sitting calm and cool in her chair under the cedar unnerved me. I served another fault, and yet another. Here, I say, Garnet, observed Mr Chase plaintively. Do put me out of this hideous suspense. I'm becoming a mere bundle of quivering ganglions. I loathe facetiousness in moments of stress. I frowned austerely, made no reply, and served another fault, my fifth. Matters had reached a crisis. Even if I had to lob it underhand, I must send the ball over the net with the next stroke. I restrained myself this time, eschewing the careless vigour which had marked my previous efforts. The ball flew in a slow semicircle and pitched inside the correct court. At least, I told myself, I had not served a fault. What happened then, I cannot exactly say. I saw my opponent spring forward like a panther and whirl his racket. The next moment the back net was shaking violently and the ball was rolling swiftly along the ground on a return journey to the other court. Love 40, said Mr Chase. Phyllis? Yes? That was the Tilden slosh. I thought it must be, said Phyllis. In the third game I managed to score 15. By the merest chance I returned one of his red-hot serves and probably through surprise, he failed to send it back again. In the fourth and fifth games, I omitted to score. Phyllis had left the cedar now and was picking flowers from the beds behind the court. We began the sixth game, and now, for some reason, I played really well. I struck a little vein of brilliance. I was serving, and this time a proportion of my serves went over the net instead of trying to get through. The score went from 15 all to 40-15. Hope began to surge through my veins. If I could keep this up, I might win yet. The Tilden slosh diminished my lead by 15. Then I got in a really fine serve which beat him. Vantage in, another slosh. Deuce, another slam. Vantage out. It was an awesome moment. There is a tide in the affairs of man which, taken by the flood, I served. Fault. I served again. A beauty. He returned it like a flash into the corner of the court. With a supreme effort, I got to it. We rallied. I was playing like a professor. Then whiz! The slosh had beaten me on the post. Game and, said Mr Chase, tossing his racket into the air and catching it by the handle. Good game, that last one. I turned to see what Phyllis thought of it. At the eleventh hour, I had shown her of what stuff I was made. 
She had disappeared. Looking for Miss Derrick, said Chase, jumping the net and joining me in my court. She's gone into the house. When did she go? At the end of the fifth game, said Chase. This week's TLS includes Clive James's poetry notebook, Antonia Fraser growing up, The Hazards of the English Language, and Nicola Schulman reviewing an exhibition on the art of painting gardens. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.